Welcome to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Faculty Forum with your host, Matt Warhoover. Uh, I believe Dr. Hoffman is going to be here in about 10 minutes, but you can certainly uh, bring John up if you'd like, and I can introduce our perfusion colleague for today, uh, who is John Poland. And John, is he up? Can we bring him up? There you go. Hey, John, how are you, man? How's it going? Morning. I'm doing great. It's really good to talk to you. Listen, I've got your I've got your bio, and it looks like you graduated. You graduated from Vanderbilt, right? From Perfusion School, yes, sir. Yes. How long have you been working there now? Uh, this will be my second week. Second week? Yes, sir. Holy mackerel, man! So how was the so t so? Tell us about that. How was your how was so before that you worked as an anesthesia uh, tech, and you yes, uh, and you uh, also did auto transfusion for a while, and so you know Correct. you have how long did you do that for before you went to perfusion school? Uh, ten years. Ten years, and then what made you decide yes, to go to perfusion school? Did they approach you or did you approach them? Well, I've known all these guys here since I've been here, and. One of them in particular, uh, Phyllis, uh, I've known her. She started in 2009 about the same time I did, and we've become pretty close friends. And about five or six years ago, she approached me about it and pushed me, and things weren't lined up at the time. They finally lined up in 2019, and I was able to apply. Well, good for you, and you got in. Didn't just apply, but you actually it's, got in. It was, the, it was the right decision. A little bit late, but I'm happy. Excellent, perfect. That is that is most excellent. I'm really glad. Um, but uh, hey, um, so John, so so tell. I'd like to hear more about your training. But Magic, do you have a second? Can can you come here for a second, please, and see what I'm seeing? But what's mine doing this for? Do you think? Try a different browser? Okay. Hold on a second, John. I've got to get my, my act together here. So we're waiting for, uh, we're waiting on Dr. Hoffman? Yes, he's on his way in right now. He said he was running a little bit late. We long day yesterday. Mm -hmm. So how many cases did you do through your, uh, through your training? Because generally, Vanderbilt University, uh, we try to, they try to get us around 200 to 220. That's a pretty good number. Uh, because, yeah, because of COVID, we got pulled out for around two and a half months, and that was like right when we were really starting to rev up. And I think I ended up with around 160, depending on where you get. I think the top in our class was like right around 210. Mm -hmm. uh, but COVID, really, you know, like I said, it took me out for 75 plus days of work. And then I actually got COVID at one time, so it took me out another two Are weeks. Are you kidding me? So I, no, and then my, one of my roommates got COVID, which took me out another two weeks. Uh, from clinic as well. So right when it right when it started, they made us all quarantine and live together. So I, I ultimately missed around three and a half months of, clin of clinical rotation time because of holy because of holy mackerel. So now, I mean, did, how was your what were your symptoms? I mean, were you really sick with COVID or did you just have COVID positive? Uh, no, I, the worst thing for me was congestion uh, and uh -huh. just a, a back. And a little bit of fever, but once that broke, it was just muscle congestion. Wow, wow. 
So a uh, question for you then, on, in your training with Vanderbilt and your program, did you, were you doing the, uh, the, the, the uh, transports as well, the ECMO transports, or the, were you, did you get trained on the um, heart-in-a-box technology? Did you, you know, like what all encompassed your training? What was, your, what was that like there? It was, it's really kind of, depending on and, and we're not here Vanderbilt. I wish I was, and so I kind of felt I was going to work here. It was kind of what you put into is what you're going to get out of it. Know that we weren't required to go on ECMO transports, mm-hmm. but if I had one available, if I had one available, they would try to send me. Yeah, that's fantastic. One, four, or five. Mm-hmm. Um, if I know this is going to be part of the job, I want to get experience at it and start doing it as early as possible. The more I have now, the, the farther it takes me. Sure. Uh, so, as far as like heart in the box, again, we didn't get to travel with that. Usually, it's kind of a tight, it's a packed airplane uh, in those situations. So we only got to see it when it was actually back here at Vanderbilt. If it, if we were available thanks. to see it. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That is really good. So did you you know do you rotate with like how many cardiac surgeons are actually? Did you ever do cases with Dr. Patrasic? No, I, I, I worked with him before, but not as far as a perfusion student. He was gone by the time we we actually started in the program. But I, I know of him, and I've, I've known him since he was here. You know, I used to work with him. I worked with him in Nashville when he was a uh, when he was a uh, a fellow, and so oh, really? he was no. yes, he was a fellow uh, when I knew him, and uh, real interesting. Real interesting guy. He really went on and did some great stuff. I, I did cases for him over at St. Thomas. Yeah, he's, he's very well known. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on where I went on my rotations for school, certain people would ask about him. If, that was, if this is where he was from, I would always acknowledge that he was. Uh, at Vanderbilt, there's, I think there's six surgeons now. Yeah. And just at Vanderbilt. Uh, and depending on the school, we go on different rotations. Uh we can go to like St. Luke's in Kansas City, uh, University of Minnesota. So it just depends. We had like 13 locations we could choose from to kind of do our outsider. So, uh huh. How does that work? Do you have a hierarchy, or do you just you just pick where you want to go, and that's where you go? I mean, I would imagine that if you know, how do you manage more than one person wanting to go to the same place? Well, she we only had a certain amount of slots for certain places, so she would try to always get us one we selected. For me, I had a house in Nashville. I tried to stay pretty close, uh, and depending on where people's skill levels were, or did they need more, more cases or something like that, they might have sent them to a more uh, Vanderbilt-like university type mm-hmm. situation. So mm-hmm. it's kind of just you got lucky. I ended up going to two places that I didn't even choose, which was fine. I liked both of them anyways, so it wasn't even an issue. Uh, but it was just logistics. COVID do a lot of. Everybody knows that COVID threw a curveball into everything. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, but I'm glad I ended up going to Ballot Health up in uh, the Tri Cities, mm-hmm. uh, Kingsport, and then I went to Birmingham. Uh, East. Mm-hmm. So I'm very happy. Well, good, good. So, hey guys, I noticed that there's some some jumpiness in theirs. Is that their internet access? It's their connection. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll just make sure that they speak up and speak slow. It's not It's not that you're not closer. It's your internet connection. Okay. Nothing is ever perfect in this world, dude. I tr- we try so hard to have perfect. I think what Vanderbilt needs, we, I'm sure magic will probably help 
run an AT&T fiber cable to the hospital, dedicated line just for you guys. We'll make this a whole lot easier. So if would you, not. it would be. So John, tell us a little bit about what your passions are, what you focused on when you were in training besides just getting through that process and what you, you know, really have an interest in as you move forward in your perfusion career that you want to uh, be a part of. Morning, Dr. Hoffman. Uh, we heard him. We we always hear we always hear Dr. Hoffman before we see him. The the main thing as I came in was I knew a lot of the surgeons before the next when I Dr. Hoffman had just came in when I started school, so I didn't know him beforehand, but I knew Dr. Shaw. It was getting just comfortable with the surgeons and building trust with them through being there as much as possible. Showing, you know, one thing is these guys got to trust us, mm -hmm. and it's going to take a while for him to build complete trust in me. But the more I work, continue and be there, be seen, and just work hard. You know, that's that's my thing. Is I'll, I'm not. Mm -hmm. He's smart. He's smart. So, so Dr. Hoffman, just so you Except know, when I see that i'm wondering who would do that he used to train dogs he used to train dogs so what what do you see in the yeah. morning huh? what what does he bring oh, he said the picture of me uh there's some pictures of me from where i used to do uh police work uh protection dog work um what the dogs bite me he said that, that doesn't really, he doesn't think i'm smart for doing that i, I understand so he I mean, his hands twist the dog. who trains who though the dog or the trainer well, with us, we train the dog, but depending on, uh, usually it's a lot of times it's the, the dog runs the owner. You know, they, they say the dog's never the problem. Usually the owner's the problem. Absolutely. I completely understand. So, Dr. Hoffman, very quickly, um, I think we introduced you the last time you were here, and thanks for joining us this morning. We're really looking forward to this presentation on VADS. But you're, a, you know, just for the sake of the audience that may not have been here last time, you were uh, born in New Orleans. Uh, and by the way, do you know a, a fellow by the name of uh, Devinder Bhatia? He's also a, a heart surgeon. And uh, him and his family are also from New Orleans, his wife, Gina. Huh, I haven't come across him. Oh. No, you haven't come across him. I need to get you two guys together because he's a super, super nice guy. And he's out here in Houston. I think you guys would have a lot in common. Um, anyway, so you also came out here to to Texas. You went to Rice University in Houston. Of course, that's a big place. That's where uh, President Kennedy gave his uh, speech on us going to the moon some years ago, right there in the stadium. I've been there. Pretty interesting place. And then went on to uh, Emory and to uh, Grady in Atlanta. And uh, your passions are really in in stage heart failure, lung disease, pulmonary hypertension, mechanical support devices, uh, and aortic surgery. And you've done a tremendous amount of work in heart failure physiology and patients going under LVAD, left ventricular assist device placement, and other novel therapies to extend the viability of donor hearts like the heart in the box, which you discussed already. So I think we, uh, we have our slides. And I want to go ahead and get your program started, but I have a couple of questions for you before we do. One, it says Chapter 22, Devices for Cardiac Support and Replacement. 
So is that out of uh, Hensley's CT Anesthesia book, and that's chapter 22? Yeah, I wrote that chapter, so that's why I, I, I put that in there. That makes a lot of sense. I'm, uh, that's pretty impressive. I mean, you're a really young guy, and you wrote a chapter in this textbook. You know, I mean, unless you just have some way of looking younger than you actually are, um, yeah, it's really impressive that you've accomplished all you have, and you're just such an affable fellow, you know, I mean, you're just a nice person, so I really appreciate that, and I'm curious if you could maybe tell our audience about what John had sort of mentioned, you have to trust us, we have to trust you, and sort of that relationship that exists, which I don't think a lot of people who aren't in our industry really can appreciate but that relationship of cardiac surgeon and perfusionists uh, when you guys are managing patients and what that relationship really means. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a lot about, uh, it's, a, it's a skill that you take from our different areas of life. It, it's not just us in the OR, but um, learning to trust someone is more implicit than it is explicit. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, one thing, this seems... This seems very, but in my mind, it's like a little test. If I'm about to connect the aortic and I say run up and then I get with saline, I mean, that in my mind is the first thing. I'm like, okay, I got to look out for this person. Or if it comes up perfectly and it doesn't blast anyone, I'm like, okay, this person kind of knows what they're doing. And that's just one little uh, snippet of trust. Mm -hmm. And then there's more of that of the case. And by the end of the case, you can kind of tell what you're dealing with. They can tell what we're dealing what they're dealing with um you know for instance if they suggest something and and we're i feel like i think it's important to you know you, you listen to everyone in the room you don't have to take everyone's opinion but um you know i, I think a lot of people come up with reasonable opinions that i i don't necessarily come up with own or think about so um you know trust goes both ways and and i have little things to determine if who i'm working with will will um will do a good job and and then and then they have and you guys have the same thing and, and it goes both ways and it's not really hey can I trust you you know that's pretty explicit it's more of these little details the de the devils in the details these little details that kind of add up and 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 tell you if, if you are working with someone who knows what they're doing and that that you know you bring up a, <laughs> such a good point and that run up you know I have seen so many different ways of doing the same thing over my career but what I try to teach people, and John, you can take this for what it's worth, is the last thing we need to do is stay in a position where we cannot actually see what they are doing in the surgical field. So you get up, you walk around on the opposite side of the pump, you use two hands, and you look and watch as you open that clamp and slowly bring that up. So other than being able to do that one maneuver, which I do excellently, I'm totally incompetent the rest of the day. But they think that I'm the best perfusionist that ever walked the face of the planet because I can do that. So for whatever it's know, worth. It goes both ways, though, because if you watch anyone who's done cardiac surgery long enough, if they're standing on, I don't know which side of the bed you guys put your pump on, but on our side, it, it's on the patient's left in our ORs. The person on the patient's left should move out of the way so the perfusionist can see the pump coming up. 
Yes. And if you just have someone who stands, I've watched people who know what they're doing, and I watch them move out of the way so you can see. And then I watch some of the new fellows who just kind of stand there and block your view. Yes. That's another, that's a, that's a, a little uh, piece of information that you guys get from us about whether, you know, you can trust us. Do we know what we're doing? Yes. And anyone who's done it, and, and these are just minor things. They don't mean a lot to anyone outside the OR, but for us, and, and for us, it's a big thing. And I think that, you know, I, I think it's funny when you get a new student up there, a perfusion student, and they don't know what they're doing, and they just blast you. And that's my opportunity to make fun of them and really get in their head. Um, but if that's coming from someone who's been doing it for 20 years, you start wondering, are they getting dementia or, or, or <laughs> Well, I've been accused of that here recently. So I've been searching for my words a lot. So I've, I've, I've started taking Prevagen, which has really been helpful. I mean, so, you know, whatever, that may be a good advertisement for Prevagen. Um, right. I seem to be getting uh, can, a little can better. I, can I interject something here? Sure. So I'm going to be working with this guy for a long time, hopefully. And I don't, it does not bother me. I don't, when you walk into the OR, you cannot have an ego. Uh, if he asks me something, I don't get upset about it. Or if he questions me on something, I don't get upset about it. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's his patient. It's all of our patients. But he's the front line. And he's the one that's dealt with the patient, the family. And I'm okay with him knowing exactly what's going on back there if I need to. You know, because he's 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 seeing everything going up there. And I might not be able to say everything. So I want him, if he, if he is worried about me, you know, something going on back there, not in a bad way, but just if everything's all right. I'm okay with him asking me that, you know, that knows that I know that he's paying attention as well. Well, yeah, that's a, that's such, that's a very good point, you know, and of course you're pretty young in your career, John. So, you know, but you're not a, you're not young. Okay. You know, it's not like you're, you're, this is your first job in, in, in medicine or in the operating room or whatever it may be. So total, a little bit different, but I consider everything that we do, whether it's Dr. Hoffman, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's anesthesia or whether it's the nurses, basically we do we do performance art. We are always being watched and we are judged by our last best decision and or our last worst decision as the case may be. So, you know, when I talk to people, I I expect people to ask me questions or challenge me or watch how I do something or ask why I do it that way. Just like Dr. Hoffman or any other surgeon may be asked the same question. You're going to get asked in your career. So how we, that's how we learn, number one. And number two, if you can't be asked questions and you can't feel under a microscope, you're in the wrong business because we are performers. Every day we go to work, we are basically working for an audience. And uh, the ultimately, the patient is the is the person that's most important in the room, and we're all caring for that person. But we, you know, whether you're on on TV, YouTube TV, like you are now, or you're in the operating room, we are performers at the end of the day. You know, and uh, one of my favorite sayings is, "It's not enough to be good; you got to look good or no good." And you guys look really good today. So, with good. that said. <laughs> That's what's important. So with that said, Dr. Hoffman, we're going to get started straight away. I know you have a very long presentation today, which is going to be filled, packed, jam-packed, full of really great pearls of wisdom and information that's going to be helpful for people. The title is LVADS, and you're starting it off with the chapter that you wrote in Hensley's CT Anesthesia book, Chapter 22. I recommend people out there get this book. 
uh, and uh, read this chapter as a follow-up. So, Dr. Uh, Hoffman, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks so much. Um, so, yeah, like like we talked about, this is a this is a kind of an extended discussion of um, of uh, what we discussed last month. Um, it's a little bit more geared towards the surgical and the anesthetic side of things, but I think it's important for anyone to know that, whether you're a perfusionist, a nurse, a surgeon, an anesthesiologist, uh, an ICU nurse, um, really everyone should kind of have an idea as to what other people's roles are. So this is a little bit of an insight into the surgeon and anesthetic management of patients with LVADs. And, um, it is based off a chapter I wrote in Hensley's uh, CT Anesthesia, which is a book that I know the anesthesia residents and attendings read. Um, and I've seen even some of the perfusionists. Don't you guys have a, you guys basing your lectures off of that? Yeah, I don't actually got this book. Yeah, so this is, um, I guess this seems to be kind of an all-around uh, all um, uh, book for, for kind of everyone involved in CT surgery. Uh, so let's go to the next slide. So if you get a chance, just take a look at chapter 22. This is a little bit based on that. Uh, and I know everyone here knows this, uh, but we'll briefly talk about the history of, um, of LVAD. So uh, it really starts with the history of cardiopulmonary bypass, because without that, uh, and now some will argue you don't need bypass, but without bypass, you can't really put in a, 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 an, art, a, an artificial mechan uh, mechanical pump. And uh, we all know that bypass kind of um, got its roots in the 50s, uh, the 60s saw an advent of temporary mechanical support. Um, and the NHLBI in, the, in 1964, they came up with a number of, um, uh, they were granting uh, different programs, they were granting uh, funds to come up with uh, ideas for artificial heart, uh, what they called the artificial heart program, but really uh, when you break it down meant, meant LBADs. And, they were looking for someone to develop uh, a, a pump that could provide full support, quote unquote, because I'll get to this in a minute. They wanted full support with up to 10 liters uh, of flow per minute. Now, how you define 10 liters of flow, whether it's water or blood, it wasn't really clear. Um, in my mind, an LVAD is really only partial support. I know people will refer to it as full support, but if you think about it, we've got a right and a left side of the heart, and you're only really supporting the left side of the heart. In fact, you're probably making the right side worse or, or unmasking some underlying RV dysfunction. So I think of an LVAD as partial support. Again, uh, it's partial support. I, I really think a good, durable, biventricular support option is a heart transplant. Um, and to a lesser extent, a total heart, but those have their own set of problems. Um, and, and so 10 liters a minute, so you never see a, a, an LVAD get to 10 liters a minute. They're rated for it because, you know, that's tested with saline or some um, very non-viscous fluid. But uh, really, when you're talking blood, you're getting five, six liters a minute. Um, and, and really, do you need more than that? No. Um, can it get more than that? Probably a little bit. So Dr. DeBakey in 66 put the first pneumatic LVAD in. Um, and in 69, Dr. Cooley put the, to uh, the first total artificial heart as a bridge to transplant. And, and these were terrible. Um, I mean, they, they, they were great because they were the first ones done, but they were terrible in that the patients had complications and didn't live. Um, but the first bridge to transplant in 1984 was done, uh, uh, the first LVAD as a bridge to transplant was done in 84. Um, so we can go to the next slide. Um, and so a lot of the older guys uh, will talk about these old first-generation LVADs and how difficult they were. Um, it, when we talk about first-generation LVADs, we're really referring to the X4, uh, the PVAD, and the XVE. 
Uh, and some people would even say the Berlin Heart can, can be thrown in there. I don't, I don't necessarily consider it. I mean, I guess the Berlin Heart is an older device, but we still put it in, especially in kids today. So it's still in use. But these first uh, generation models were really the X-Core, the PVAD, and the XVE. And these were, uh, um, you know, as with everything in the 60s, these, there was some enthusiasm for LVADs, but that kind of went away and, and really came back in the 80s and 90s with these uh, first generation devices. They were all pneumatically driven. Um, they were pulsatile. Uh, they really couldn't be used as destination, what we call destination therapy, whatever that means now. Uh, and uh, they were large, noisy, and, and uh, had many infections, cannula malfunctions, and they were very difficult to explain. Um, we, we use a lot of electric cautery in the OR, and uh, especially with the PVAD, if you would cauterize anything, it would short it out and it would stop. It was really, it was not an easy pump to remove. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm an expert in uh, taking these out because, uh, you know, I'm not an old person, but <laughs> uh, I hope I don't offend anyone with that. But, uh, but I know about these, and I've learned about them, and I've seen them. So uh, these, these pumps are really, uh, they don't exist anymore. They're just kind of uh, probably in the Smithsonian. Um, but then in the uh, early 2000s and late 2000s, um, we started seeing these second-generation pumps, which really was the HeartMate 2. Uh, it was FDA approved for a bridge in 2008 and uh, as a destination in 2010. It's continuous flow and uh, it's, uh, it's a propeller surrounded by a metal case which is termed an impeller. Um, there are two devices. One is axial, which is the HeartMate 2, and one is centrifugal, uh, which is the HVAD, the hardware uh, HVAD. It's uh, smaller, less noisy, uh, less complications. Still hard to explain. The HeartMate 2 is very hard to explain. Um, I, you know, I keep thinking I'm gonna, I'm gonna be taking out my last one, and they just keep popping up. Um, and I've done a number of LVAD explants here that have been HeartMate 2s. I put a lot of HeartMate 2s in as a fellow um, some years back, but uh, that really we don't put those anymore. Uh, we, we do take them out though, uh, and I'd say once every couple of months we get someone who comes who shows up with a HeartMate 2, and I kick myself because I keep wishing that these were these were, were done with these, but we're actually not. They're still walking through the door. Uh, and these are axial flow. The HVAD, the hardware HVAD is not axial, it's uh, centrifugal. So uh, we can go to the next slide and, and uh, we'll get into the third generation devices, which are the, um, the HVAD kind of bridges the gap between the uh, second and third generation. But the HeartMate 3 is really thought of as the third generation LVAD, uh, which is, as everyone knows, probably. Uh, 2016, 2017, and later, uh, 2015. Um, but the, really, uh, the, uh, the HeartMate 3 is what we put in a lot here. We put in some HVADs here as well. Um, but the HeartMate 3 is really the third generation device we're using. Um, the propeller is completely uh, levitated uh, magnetically. Uh, and, and that's what the, the company will sell. They think that it reduces pump thrombus, it's a bearing uh, less design, and uh, it reduces friction, heat, and wear. And, um, and, uh, and, and just uh, they, the company will tell you has better outcomes. The HVAD is partially uh, magnetically levitated. Don't ask me what that means um, because that doesn't make sense to me, but um, that's the selling point for it. Uh, both of these are approved for bridge to transplant or destination. And, and I, I commented earlier that we're not sure what that means anymore because at least here at Vanderbilt, we have a lot of patients we sign up as a destination LVAD. And then, you know, sure enough, six months later, they've lost 30 pounds, they've stopped smoking, um, stopped using drugs, or whatever it is they were uh, selected for LVAD for, and they come back up as, uh, as, a, 
as a bridge and, and selected for transplant. So when we don't, I, I mean, I use bridge and destination, but we really have gotten away from using those terms in these patients. Um, really, in my mind, uh, unless you're really uh, under extreme circumstances, almost everyone is a bridge with an LDAD. Um, and the question is, will they survive six more months on medical therapy so they get their life in order? Do they get a transplant, or do we think that they're not really going to get themselves together in six months, and you put a put an LVAD in them and uh, give them time to settle out, um, which is not an easy discussion or decision to be made. Uh, these these pumps uh, are smaller, and so I say here that they can use as, be used as durable bivads, but the, it's not a great option. They don't. The thing about bivads is you want the pumps to talk to each other so that when RV flow is down. LD flows also go down, or, or if one is up, the other can go up. But if you're using two uh, durable LVADs, like, for instance, two HeartMate 3s, and you're putting one on the right and one on the left, they're not talking to each other. So it's very complicated, the management of those pumps. Um, and I guess if, if you say that there's any upside to the total artificial heart, it, it's that there's communication between the right and left side. But, it, you know, it's, it's not a great pump either, but it's got its own set of problems. Uh, these third-generation LVADs are small enough in that they can be implanted through other routes. So uh, you can implant them through a thoracotomy. Uh, you can uh, you can anastomose the outflow graft to uh, the descending aorta, the ascending aorta, the axillary artery. Um, I've seen uh, I've seen the inflow. Uh, when I was a fellow, we did an inflow from. The left atrium through the right atrium and then out the aorta. That was in a small kid, and we did that with an HVAD. Um, so there are a lot of different configurations described for these uh, for these third generation LVADs. Uh, and I think I get into this later. There are also other um, ways to use them. Let's go to the next slide and see what's there. So here are some pictures of all the devices I've just discussed. In the upper left, you've got the Thoratec PVAD. Um, the Berlin Heart, the Xcore, uh, sorry, the Berlin Heart, um, which comes in an adult and pediatric version. We don't use it really in adults, but we do use it in kids. Uh, and the orientation is big with these, meaning uh, inflow and outflow are directional. Um, Thoratec uh, became Abbott. They make the PVAD, the XV, the HeartMate 2, and the HeartMate 3. Hardware is Medtronic, and they make the HVAD. All these companies have morphed in some way or another over the years, so it's very confusing. Um, when you're uh, using these uh, companies' names interchangeably. And then there's the Ber Berlin heart, uh, which is an external pulsatile heart, uh, mostly in kids. So upper right-hand corner, uh, the HeartMate 2 is this axial flow. You can see the blood comes from the LV apex and, and travels uh, in line out to the aorta, whereas with a HeartMate 3 or centrifugal pump, it travels, gets propelled through this propeller impeller, and out the uh, outflow graft into the aorta. And bottom right-hand corner, difference between HeartMate 3, HeartMate 2, and an HVAD. So this is just for those who haven't seen a lot of these pumps, um, but I'm sure a lot of people here have. So let's go to the next slide. Um, so why do we put an LVAD in someone? I mean, you could say, well, we should just transplant everyone. And that's kind of our theory here at Vanderbilt. You know, we think that the best biventricular support uh, is, is a heart transplant. And so anyone we can transplant, we do. But we do, have, and, and then there are patients that come to us and say, well, they're, they're still smoking, they need six months of abstinence. Can they do six months of abstinence on medical therapy, or are they too far uh, gone or too sick to 
to just continue medical therapy? Do they need an LVAD just to get them to the point where they can be explanted and transplanted? So uh, 10 to 20 percent of waitlisted patients will, without an LVAD, meaning they're getting medical optimal, hopefully optimal medical therapy, will die prior to heart transplant. Um, if you take all comers, 30 percent of patients who are waitlisted will have an LVAD. Uh, some patients are too old for transplant, so 70 is not really a cutoff. You've got to consider all their comorbidities and their functional status as a whole, but typically 70 is the general rule like for if we should be considering transplant or LVAD on someone. And then, as I mentioned, some patients have contraindications, drug use, tobacco use, social concerns, whatnot. So this is why we put in LVADs. Again, I don't think that an LVAD is a be-all, end-all. I don't think it's the... Um, it's, I don't think it's really cut out for, you know, um, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want an LVAD my entire life. If it were to get me to a heart transplant, I'd say sure, but I don't think it's really full support like we say. Let's go to the next slide. Um, so this is, uh, this is, so when we have our transplant listing meetings, we talk about this Intermax score or Intermax level. The Interagency Registry of Mechanical Assisted Circulatory Support is a database out of, it was out of UAB, it's now owned by the Society for Thoracic Surgeons, and it basically classifies patients who are being considered for LVAD into groups, um, depending on how sick they are. And at the top is this Intermax 1 status, which means they're, they're really um, not doing well, and uh, the, the, the expected... Um, the expected lifespan for someone who is an Intermax 1 without intervention is hours. Um, and so these are the patients we're putting on uh, ECMO or uh, non-durable non uh, BIVADs. Um, it, it really, we're, we're trying to capture Intermax 2, Intermax 3, and Intermax 4 patients who are stable as outpatients uh, or, or starting to slide requiring higher inotropes or being admitted with decompensated heart failure and requiring maybe a little extra support through inotropic uh, inotropes or maybe even a balloon pump. And these patients typically when you put an LVAD in them tend to do okay. Um, the Intermax 1 patients really don't do well. They really do poorly and so when you're choosing to put an LVAD in an Intermax 1 patient you've got to choose wisely. Um, because the cards are stacked against you just by the nature that they're requiring mechanical support. And if you start adding things to that, like obesity and drug use, then you wonder kind of where you're going with this. And maybe the better discussion is a palliative discussion, or can you support them on ECMO until they, until they recover? Um, so, uh, again, any, any, and, and if, uh, for anyone who's training, I think if you're going to do an LVAD case, Look through the patient's history, look through the patient's chart, and try and determine where they are uh, in this, uh, in this, uh, which Intermax level they are, and, and that'll give you an idea of, you know, what, how difficult it's going to be to manage them afterwards. Mm -hmm. How uh, much? Like I said, go ahead. I'm sorry. How much of that is the acuity of their illness versus the more chronic and, you know, somewhat adaptive? nature of those patients, you know, in comparison? Yeah, I think, well, I think a lot of the patients in Intermax category 1, 2, and 3 are uh, what I call acute on chronic, and I think it's both. Um, and so you could have a chronic uh, uh, end-stage heart failure patient who is maintained on um, guideline-directed medical therapy and gets 
uh, I don't want to use coronavirus, but it gets an upper respiratory infection or a COPD exacerbation or some disease unrelated to heart failure, well, next thing you know, they're in decompensated heart failure requiring inotropes when they didn't before. So they're starting to slide and it moves them up the Intermax, moves them to like an Intermax 2 maybe. And so a lot of these Intermax 1, 2, and 3 are just patients who are chronic heart failure who have a, a second hit unrelated to their heart failure that then start to slide. Um, because in my mind, their heart failure is kind of in a perfect balance of being managed well with medical therapy and then, uh, and then all of a sudden it's not. So it's both acute and chronic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This, uh, you know, me looking at this, this is the first time I've seen this, and him talking about it, we try to look at patients' information, and this could give me a, might be before I even speak to him, he may not even be in the OR in the morning, I may be able to see this and kind of determine if we might need, in a situation where we might need a bypass in that situation, where he's talking about them sliding fast, we might have to go on RV support, depending on when we do this, so that's something that I'm going to yeah. actually give a look at as well now. Yeah, and I think that um, I, I think the decision for RVAD or RV support following, it, I, I'm going to get into this because it's a little bit of a complex issue, but yeah, that, that does raise the question, are they going to need biventricular support? So, um, I, I, and actually the decision for RV support in this, in this particular presentation is, this is, in my mind, it's the most helpful and the most uh, important thing that you can take away from this lecture. And again, I'll get into that in a few minutes. So let's go to the, um, oh, like, okay, so uh, upper right-hand corner of that last slide, if you could go back, I, I wrote here when I wrote this slide deck, um, Intermax 1, it's, we don't usually go straight all that with them. So we'll put them on mechanical support and we let them settle out. It's really rare that you'll put someone on mechanical support like ECMO and then bring them to the OR for an LVAD. I mean, we make exceptions, but it, that's rare. So usually you got to get them on uh, ECMO, and then you got to see what happens. Because if their kidneys start to go south, their liver starts to go south, they're really not going to be a candidate for an LVAD. So, um, so Intermax 1 should, in, in everyone's mind, Intermax 1, without exception, should probably be some sort of mechanical support with a decision about LVAD at a later time, but not concurrently. Anyway, next slide. So I thought this was really interesting. This is an article I found when putting this together. Um, these are the trends in, uh, in patients getting uh, LVADs over the last uh, 10 years. And I'll just read them uh, on the left and on the right. Uh, the trends have been we've been implanting a higher number of LVADs over the last 10 years. Uh, more of them have been going to African Americans. Uh, there's been a higher, uh, an increase in the need for temporary mechanical circulatory support. Um, like I said, in the last slide, we've been inter implanting more Intermax profile 1 and 2 patients, although a lot of programs around the country have, have um, policies, not policies, but have had internal discussions about whether, you know, for instance, Vanderbilt, uh, we don't like to, right off the bat, implant LVADs into patients with Intermax uh, 1 scores. That being said, we've done it, and I've done it, um, but it's really... It's hard to justify, and, and the outcomes aren't as good. And so, again, we put them on mechanical support and let them settle out. Um, here's that destination therapy creeping in again. These are patients who get LVADs and actually feel great and decide, you know, I'm done. I've had patients come into clinic for heart failure or heart transplant workup, and they've got an LVAD, and they say, I just want to keep my LVAD, and I'm not really interested in another, uh, in another, um, in another surgery. So they don't want heart transplant. Uh, and there's been an increase in the use of magnetically levitated uh, technology, which is basically the HeartMate 3. But that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
because that's really the only, I mean, there's the HVAD and there's the HeartMate 3. So um, we are seeing improved one to two year survivals. Uh, and I don't know if that's because our selection for these patients is better. Um, we still see a lot of bleeding episodes and infection. Um, it's, you know, it's really hard to keep clean. Uh, and that's a common source of infection. The incidence of stroke has gone down. Um, the readmission rate remains high. Uh, and then withdrawal of care after LVAD is, a, is a, uh, a rising cause of death. And I think that might be because putting an LVAD in someone uh, allows their family to you know, maybe have more time with them. And that's quality time. And when they realize, hey, you know, this patient's not doing as well, but we've had our quality time, the, the LVAD has bought us some time. Um, then they move towards more of a palliative approach. So um, withdrawal of care does represent a rising cause of death, but that's not necessarily a, a, an accurate statement because withdrawal of care isn't, I mean, yes, ultimately it causes their death, but um, they really die from multi-system organ failure or single organ failure. So, uh, Next slide, please. Uh, so when I'm uh, putting an LVAD in, I, I think about a lot of things. Uh, in our meeting, we meet every Tuesday and we discuss who's going to get LVAD, who's going to get a heart transplant. Um, and we really lean hard on, um, you know, the social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists to tell us uh, about the patient's social history and whether there's any, there are any red flags, um, uh, any direct contraindications for direct transplant, which would be active drug use, active tobacco use, weight, uh, A1C or diabetes that's uncontrolled. Um, Financial issues, uh, and it's unfortunate we're dealing with this, but there are some people who can't afford either a heart transplant or LVAD. Um, you've got to be able to afford the medicines that you're going to be taking afterwards. Otherwise, you're going to have you're going to have a pump thrombus if you can't afford the warfarin, or you're going to have rejection if you can't afford the anti uh, the immunosuppression meds. You wonder about compliance. I had a guy who came in and um, he told me he was non-compliant with warfarin in the past because he didn't like the medicine. And in my mind, you know, if you can't be compliant with warfarin, then you can't get an LVAD. Um, and then we talked about him. Six months went by, and he uh, uh, warfarin for six months straight. It was documented that his INRs were normal, or not normal, but, you know, therapeutic. And he came back up, and he, he was compliant with warfarin. And we said, okay, I think we can put an LVAD in him. So, lastly, you know, this is not something I think our there are a lot of patients that come outside the city or, or who don't have running water, and you need power to run an LVAD. I mean, you just power. And it's not intuitive, but we've had patients who don't have power and have, and have an LVAD, and they just have nowhere to plug it in, and they lose all battery power. So you have to have power. You have because you have to keep things. Uh, again, these aren't things, but if you're putting an LVAD in someone, you want to make sure that they're going to be successful. You don't want to set them up for failure. So what we'll do is we'll admit, we'll admit these patients two or three days in advance for a right heart cath, and we'll assess their volume status, their right atrial and PA pressures, and we'll as, as much and um, to really get their PA pressures down. And, and you know, usually when their PA pressure is high, it might be group two pulmonary hypertension, which is hyper pulmonary hypertension related to LV dysfunction. So that you know, you've got a high PA pressure, a mean greater than twenty, and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure that's you know through the roof. You know, that's probably group two, and they've got LV failure. That's probably group two pulmonary hypertension, um, and that if all their filling pressures are high, that's a diuresis and get those down. Um, if you've got someone with a normal uh, wedge pressure but a high PA pressure, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but 
that should raise the possibility that you're not dealing with group two pulmonary hypertension. You're dealing with something else, and then you've got to work up their lungs and whatnot. But anyway, that's a for another day. Come for a right heart cath, we'll status and we'll diuresis. Usually, patients have group two pulmonary hypertension, mild, and we'll look echo on them. And what I'm evaluating is the RV. Um, I want to see if it's uh, dilated or decompressed. I want to see if it's dysfunctional or. I'm looking at TR. You have a normal RV, normal. If you've got massive, either it's a structural abnormality, which might be, but it's rare, or it's functional TR, meaning your RV is functional that you've got uh, torrential tricuspid regurgitation. But usually, if you've got torrential TR, you'll see a dysfunctional RV. Um, but sometimes RV failure can be hidden by the fact that your LV is, and everyone focuses in on that. You don't really learn about the RV. And so I'll look at the mitral valve, determine if they have mitral regurgitation. I'm not a huge fan of doing anything about mitral regurgitation at the time of LVAD surgery. That's cross-clamp time. Uh, there is some data out there that may be a little bit more difficult patients with um, severe MR after LVAD's put in. And we'll get into that in a few minutes. AI, AI is a big, big deal in patients getting LVAD. And we're going to go into this in a few minutes, too. You can imagine if you put an LVAD in and the outflow goes to their ascending aorta and they've got a ton of AI, you're just going to create this loop. So that's got to be addressed at the time of surgery. And then I'll look at the pulmonary artery pressures and the pulmonary vascular resistance. You want the PEVR low, you want the PA pressures low, and usually that comes with diuresis. Um, and, uh, and you want to make sure the PVR is reversible with nipride. For instance, if you get a right heart cat, you want to make sure if the PVR is high, will it reverse with nipride, indicating that you're just kind of total volume overloaded and uh, your pulmonary vascular resistance is, in fact, not super through the roof. Anyway, let's go to the next slide. All that is going to come next couple, couple slides. So what is RV failure after an LVAD? So we know that 30% of these patients who get an LVAD will develop RV failure. And part of me thinks that uh, the RV was always dysfunctional in the beginning. You're just unmasking how bad it is because now you've made your LV normal by putting an LVAD in. You've offloaded it, and you're turning all this blood to the right side. So you're unmasking all this RV failure that wasn't there before. Um, we say 30%. It could be 40 or even 50%. Uh, a lot of people do have RV failure after LVAD. Um, and the etiology right now, there are a couple uh, things we think cause RV failure. Um, and here are the top three, I think. I put three in there that I think are really plausible. Um, changes in right coronary artery blood flow, which lead to a negative feedback loop. So the right coronary on uh, it, it really continues just based on uh, your RV uh, compliance works. Infidibulum is very compliant and allows blood to move through circulation continuously. Uh, but it's dependent on intact infundibulum. And so, for instance, if you put an LV, uh, an LVAD in, a left ventricular assist device, you drop the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. Um, and you end up shunting blood to the left main coronary artery because now the left ventricular end diastolic pressure is so low that flow, it, uh, it, blood flows more easily through the left, uh, left system. But there really isn't a, a drop, a corresponding drop in RV pressure. In fact, RV pressure probably goes up a bit after LVAD. And so, uh, you, you probably lose a bit of the blood flow through uh, the right coronary system. I call it a shunt. It's not a shunt. It really is not a shunt. I just call it that because that's how I picture it. It's really a preferential flow to the left side. Uh, another another uh, thought about uh, RV failure is you lose this intact pericardium. 
And when you look at how the RV and the LV, what the interplay is like between them, there's a septum that, the septum accounts for about two thirds of the right ventricle. And um, you get ventricular interdependence, which means that the septum causes the right, ventric right ventricle and left ventricle to rely on each other for adequate contraction. But the third part of that puzzle is, this, is the pericardium. Because with an open pericardium, you have this almost unlimited part to expand, but not actually contract. When your pericardium is packed, it really constrains how much blood can be in the heart before it needs to contract. And I'm not saying that the pericardium has muscle in it, or that it has the ability to contract, but it just, it's like, um, I, you know, it's like, a, it's like a really tight fitting piece of clothing. You can't really continue to eat. Uh, you're going to feel that pain a little bit sooner uh, in a tight uh, fitting piece of clothing than you are if you're wearing baggy clothes. Um, so I think you know, an intact pericardium is very essential for RV contraction. Not for the contraction itself, but for the ability to maintain that contraction. Um, you have loss of septal contraction, which I talked about, given how much uh, of the, um, the septum plays into RV contraction. And then you have loss of contractile reserve, which is what happens when you have this huge volume shift of blood that's kind of been sitting on the left side, is now being pumped out through this LVAD, and all this increased blood flow is being returned to the right side. So, for instance, you got an output of maybe two, three liters a minute before your LVAD, well, your right side is going to be used to accommodating a blood flow of two to three minutes coming back because what goes in comes out. Now you put an LVAD and you ramp it up to six liters a minute, you're going to way overload that right side, especially if you're volume overloaded, which is why admitting them pre-op for right heart cath and diuresis is so important. And so as you, if you think about the Starling curve, and I know this is going back to physiology, and I, I keep saying I'll get into more of this later in the lecture, but this lecture just keeps going on and on. You might need to stop me, but you'll fall off the Starling curve because your uh, RV muscle will stretch and stretch and stretch, and suddenly the muscles will not uh, will not overlap anymore, or will overlap, but will not have the same ability to contract down. So you, so I call it falling off the Starling curve. You call it whatever you want. That's what it is. Uh, that's what it was dis described uh, um, years ago. So. Uh, so how do we treat RV failure? Um, there's pacing, inotropes, pulmonary vasodilators, and RVAD, and ECMO. And again, I'll, get, I'll go through these in a few minutes. So let's go to the next slide. Um, so when I'm thinking about putting an LVAD in someone, um, in the OR, I, I really, these need to be, I, I guess they don't need to be, but they should be quick pump runs. I mean, less than an hour, ideally. Uh, unless you're, you know, sometimes you got to do some other things. Um, you really don't want to cross clamp. I don't cross clamp for any of these. Um, again, I think that's a, a, a morbidity in patients with heart failure. Um, you got to decide how you're going to cannulate. If I'm doing a, an LVAD through a sternotomy, I'll cannulate centrally. Um, if I'm doing it through a thoracotomy approach, I'll cannulate femorally. Um, and uh, and, and it really, you got to decide what approach you're going to take beforehand. I mean, you could go central and cannulate femorally, but I don't, I don't really see the point of that. Uh, I, I don't really put a cross clamp on. If I'm doing an AVR at the same time, uh, I will put a cross clamp to fix it. Um, and whether I'm doing an AVR or a park stitch, you know, your, your clamp time can vary. Um, some people do off-pump LVADs. I've not done one. I'm, I'm not so sure I would do one. Uh, I don't know how you would do one. I don't know that it's safe, although it's been described. Um, I know we used to do them here. 
Uh, I almost always put a femoral arterial line in because that can be converted to a balloon pump or ECMO if necessary. And then I like to come off on inotropes and pulmonary vasodilators. I, I have this secret combo that I've kind of picked up over a couple of years of practicing where I'll do routinely epi, dobutamine, and flowland. And I know epi, dobutamine combo is a little bit, um, anyone who understands uh, cardiac physiology would be scratching your head and wondering why you use those two. That's just what works for me. And I think a lot of what we do in medicine is just what works for the person. It's not, there's not a lot of data behind a lot of what we do. And, and so I just choose epi dobutamine, but I'm, I'm okay with epi norinone or dopamine or uh, just epi alone. Um, and you got to think about, I, actually, when I'm considering what I'm going to do, our cardiologists here and our ICU attendings here are very comfortable with epi dobutamine and flowline. And if you suddenly decide, well, it doesn't make any sense, I'm going to change to some other combination. You come out on milrinone and dopamine and uh, and and uh, inhaled uh, nitro. They're going to be scratching their head, and the minute they get up to the ICU, they're going to be switched back to epidobutamine and flowlin. At least here, where you practice, it could be another thing. But you know, whether you agree or disagree with a policy for coming off uh, bypass, you got to think of the people you work with, of the institution. So at our institution, it's epidobutamine flowlin. So that's and the best way to have good outcomes is to do it the same way every time. So, again, just if you're if you're that program or that program that's new, just uh, the ICU uses and how they and what the standard protocol is, and, and then use that coming out of the OR. It's very easy to do that rather than to do what you come up to the ICU and totally switch out all the lines and drips for something else. So, whether or not there's data for it, if it's institutional, then do it. If you think that it's wrong, then that discussion. You should stay in line with those so that everyone is comfortable. Anyway, uh, go to the next slide. Um, so when I am in the OR, I'm looking for a couple things. I'm looking for low PA pressures. I'm looking for uh, uh, a map that is 60 or 70. Uh, when I took this picture, I don't know, you must have been doing my perfusion because the map <laughs> was a little low. But <laughs> uh, I'm looking for no pulsatility um, because that's important when I core the LD. I don't want a lot of pulsatility. I don't want to be ejecting air. So I'm looking at a flat arterial tracing, maps of 60 to 70. 50 is okay, but a lot of these people have chronic kidney disease, so I like to run them a little higher. And maps of 60 with 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 vasopressors is a little bit of a lie. Maps of 60s with more flow would be my preference, but whatever you can do to get there. Uh, and then a PA pressure uh, that is also non-pulsatile and also, you know, uh, you know, single digits or teens would be fine. So um, let's go to the next slide. Um, so this is a, a quick... Uh, discussion of this. So I'm not an anesthesiologist, I, and I, I can read TEs and, and kind of get an idea of what's going on, but I don't do a lot of them. Um, so I'd like to talk about this. I do need to take a two-minute break. I'm getting calls about a procurement I've got to do uh, in a couple hours. Can I take a two-minute break? Can you guys talk for a second? Of course, please. Go right ahead. I'm just going to step out for one second. No problem. So, John, when he does these cases um, to get those numbers, and I really appreciated what he said about um, liking to increase flow versus pressing them uh, to get that mean arterial pressure the way he wants it to be. Of course, sometimes you'll overflow your, your cannula, 
but uh, and a heart will start getting stuffed. So there is some balance there. But what what is what do you usually do? Like how do you manage that situation? Well, and just like you said, we will if we're trying to keep pressure up. I, I try to give as few drugs as possible. You know, I mean, just like everybody else. So I'll, I'll try to increase flows if I need to. Uh, if I do need some support, if I'm if I am given some some neo or anything like that, and I'm continuously having to give it, I'll ask anesthesia for a little bit of support. So we're not sitting there just dumping them into the pump, let them, you know, the good thing about here is, is I can communicate with anesthesia and they will, you know, they'll start a drip or something if I need to. Sure. Um, it's, it's really just depending. I'm going to flow what I can and, and it's talking to him as well. It's just finding out, you know, do you, are you filling up? Is there any issues up there? You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's good about letting us know as well as we're filling up on that right side or anything like that. Sure. Uh, so it's flow is always a good thing. You know, what's your of, uh, what's your preferred uh, presser? Is it uh, 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 Neo or is it Norepi? Uh, Neo. Neo, you prefer um, if anesthesia starts something, normally they'll start a Norepi drip if, if we need a little help. Uh, but on pump, we always almost always give Neo. Mm-hmm. And do you do your perfusion cases, your pump cases, all with just continuous flow? Do you or do you use pulsatile flow? No, continuous flow. Continuous flow. Mm-hmm. And then uh, if I could ask, you know, what, what do you, like on these cases, do you have any CO2 issues? Do you keep your CO2? I'm assuming they're flooding the field with CO2 if they're going to be coring out the, the, the ventricle. Yeah, we're just watching that closely. Um, since we're normothermic, we don't cool down any on these guys. I may, you know, cool down to 30, 35 or something like that at max. But we usually stay normothermic with these guys, so we try to keep them normalized if we know they're using CO2 just to, to see around where they apex where they core the apex and everything like that I'll monitor that closer uh, but that's just a combination of knowing how much my pump suckers are tucked up and, you know make sure that I'm not taking back all this CO2 from the field so no again it's usually I run you know around normal between 40 and 45 on my CO2 on all these that sounds good okay very good doc you got your procurement yeah, we're, we're working on a couple things. So That sounds great. Okay, today. if you need a break, just let us know. No problem at all. John and I had a good conversation. So we'll throw your slides back up yeah. and keep moving forward with your coring techniques. Perfect. Awesome. So, again, I'm not, uh, a TEE. I'm not an echocardiographer, uh, but I've been doing this long enough that I can kind of get an idea of what I'm looking for with different TEE views. Uh, and so I put this, I always, this lecture was, for anesthesiologists who do TE and, and probably know a lot more about this than I do. But um, uh, when I, so I'll go through each individual uh, view um, and what is helpful for me. So the metesophageal floor chamber will give you an idea of what the right and left atrium look like, excuse me, and what the um, our right and left ventricle look like. And it's a kind of an overall all-functioning view. I use it for weaning bypass, titrating um, LVAD uh, RPMs, and watching the septum, and I'll to identify any problems with unloading of the heart. Um, there are uh, three other metesophageal views. There's the long axis, the two-chamber, and the mitral commissural view, which I'll give you a kind of a look at the LV apex. And the LV apex in everyone is a little bit different. Um, there's this dimple that I discussed last time we did this, we talked. Uh, there's a dimple where the true apex is, but that doesn't always correspond to, especially in these dilated patients, doesn't always correspond to the apical area where you're going to want it, the inflow cannula aiming at the mitral valve. So I use the uh, these metesophageal views 
uh, two chamber views to identify the true or what where, where we should put our LVAD pump. Um, if I want to see the RV3 wall, I'll go to the metasophageal aortic valve short axis view, which is this one in the upper, uh, upper kind of to the right. Um, if I'm looking for air in the root, uh, I'll want to go to a metasophageal aortic valve long axis view, uh, which I used to look at a lot when I was de-airing and coming off pump, but uh, there's always just so much air, I stopped looking because it doesn't really help me anymore. <laughs> So it's just, it just is what it is. If I'm cannulating from the groin um, with like a 25 French venous cannula and a wire, um, there's this metasophageal bicable view I'll look at, um, which will give us an idea of the SVC, IVC, and the right atrium. And then uh, if I want to identify how well I'm loading, unloading the um, uh, left ventricle, it's usually a transgastric view. Uh, and it's a short axis view of the LV and sometimes a little bit of the RV, but um, can give you an idea of um, how well the LV is decompressed. And so these, uh, for me, and I can independently interpret these without any sort of help. I know exactly what I'm looking for. Now, I can't twist the dials and get there, but I can, um, once I'm there, I can identify what I need to know. And so often at the end of the case, or as I'm coming off the pump, I'm asking the anesthesiologist and the residents to toggle between multiple views because you can't just put one view up and then forget it. You've got to go from view to view. You've got to, and often when I'm coming off pump, so when I start, I'm going to this bicable view for cannulation, uh, and then I'm looking at the uh, metasophageal four chamber just for an overall idea. When I'm, when I'm identifying the apex, I have these uh, three views on the left, three metasophageal views. And when I'm coming off pump, I'm really looking at um, two views mostly. I'm going back and forth between the metasophageal four chamber and the transgastric short axis views, um, and I just toggle between those two. Mm -hmm. uh, now, was there a question? Yeah, well, just for clarification, so, you know, and because and, I think this is an important concept um, for people, uh, you obviously are flooding your field with CO2, and so when you do see bubbles, if you will, or gas in your root, theoretically is going to be CO2 or should be CO2 or a large portion of a CO2, much more dissolvable and uh, less likely to cause problems later on for any neurologic or other end organ deficit. It should be CO2, but again, you don't know because when you, and I found when you, when you core the LV apex, there's a huge pocket of air. And assuming you're not ejecting, ejecting, the air is just going to sit in the LV apex because you've got to see what you're doing. So I put a pump sucker in. I'm cutting out muscle. I'm cutting out thrombus. And then I take the LVAD pump, and it's, and it's got a little, I don't know if they do this everywhere, but there's usually a little glove on the end where the thing's been de-aired. Mm -hmm. And I take the glove off, and I turn it over. And so all this air now goes into the, L, uh, the LVAD pump, right. even if you go quickly and put it right into the LV apex. So now there's air in the LV apex and air in the LVAD pump. So yeah. no amount of CO2 flooding the field is really going to fix that. So while I like to think it's a CO2, I, I think it's probably, oh, there is a lot of air. And I think if you talk to a lot of older surgeons and anesthesiologists who never, either never used CO2, a lot of them either never used it or don't believe it uh, as, a, as, a, as a way to de-air. So, but you use it just because um, I don't get upset if the CO2 is not set up. Um, and, and at the end of the case, I mean, again, like I said, I know it's, it's hard because 
you're always going to see air in the root. So I've almost stopped looking um, because it's not going to change anything I do. I deer the same way every time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the patients, the patients do well. So well, you know the you know the perfusion mantra. I'm assuming. What's that? No bubbles, no troubles, but what's the little air among friends? <laughs> that seems more relevant on the Venus side of the ECMO circuit, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> oh, we just accept things. Sometimes you just have to accept things. Okay, sir, Sometimes please. Sometimes you just got to go with it. Anyway, let's go to the next slide. So this is a video I created. I don't know if there's someone who can press play, and this thing moves fairly quickly, but I'll try um, so this is a reduced sternotomy LVAD I did. So this is the start where uh, you're just getting into the sternum. Um, using the saw here to get through the sternal bone. Um, again, redos are a little different than most. You've got to take down all the adhesions. Uh, and I get the sternal retractor in there early. Uh, I'm quite wet, so I use blue towels. So the first thing I do is identify the aorta, which is what I'm doing here. Um, and once I've got the aorta identified, I carve out the right side and try and get near the right atrium. And this is right atrial, this is sorry, aortic cannulation here. And all this goes real quickly. So here's here's the part about a little air amongst friends. Uh, and I think you're gonna see the assistant on the left side not move when we're trying to come up. See, look, he's just standing there yep. like a buffoon. I don't know who that was. That was pretty good. <laughs> that was actually pretty yeah. good. So here we are, uh, here is the right atrial cannulation. I use the scissors to spread the right atrium, and then I put my cannula in there. And now we're cannulating the aorta. And so here's me identifying the LV apex with one of those short axis views. And what I'll do is I'll sew a, a running proline around the LV apex onto the sewing ring. And this is how I core it out here. So I should have let these run for longer. So you but want that LV full? Yes. I don't actually, yes, it's nice to have it full, and maybe people are doing that behind my back, but I don't ask for them to fill the heart. Um, but here, here I took that piece of myocardium out, and I'm doing a running proline suture to, to, to get this LV apex in place. Um, there are some nuances here. Here's the pump in place, and now I'm tunneling the drive line. There's some nuances in that I core before I sew, um, before I sew the sewing ring on, but that's more of a surgical nuance than anything else. Um, sometimes this coring can be difficult if someone's had, you know, upper abdominal surgery or redo surgery like this. Um, but I make a counter incision and I pull this thing out. I really like to tunnel this thing widely because I think that the more you tunnel, the less likely you are to get infection into the pump. But I, I don't know if that's true. There's nothing that's ever proven that. But you'll see I do this. I, I This is a counter incision. I don't just go straight out to my... Uh, to my final destination. Mm -hmm. um, so, and and you can see in the bottom, the outflow graft is just sitting there clamped. So right now, the LVAD is in place, the outflow graft is clamped, I'm tunneling the drive line, and it looks barbaric, and it is, but, you know. Uh, so here I'm making an aortotomy for, uh, to anastomose the LVAD outflow graft onto the aorta, and I, don't have a video of the final product, but that's about it. Um, and those are the, that's the kind of the big overview of how an LVAD goes in. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can go to the slide there, unless there are questions. We always go that fast. We always go that fast. That was a pump time of about two minutes. <laughs> yep.
No, no, I, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's very remarkable. That's one of the big, you know, I, I really, uh, I think as far as the technique, I mean, I, I would think coring the ventricle, you wouldn't want it to be completely collapsed. I would think that'd make your job a lot harder. Uh, but there's mm -hmm. probably, you know, when you pick the heart up like that, you probably generate a little bit of AI and it probably mm -hmm. fills it up naturally just from the, you really don't have to restrict any flow. It's just going to happen, I would imagine. But, uh, but your drive lines, yeah. um, drive, I mean, that is a huge problem, drive line infection, because the tissue is going to naturally want to ingrowth um, into yeah. that. So, you know, that there's a lot, there's, I, I think there's a lot of work being done in reducing that, uh, but I don't think we're there yet. No, I think what will what will help will be a total implantable heart uh, LVAD that um, has an external battery. To yes, like you know how we recharge our iPhones on the pad. Yes, um, I think that'll help. But going back to your point about AI when you lift the heart, so the upside of um, a sternotomy is that it's, you can see everything you need to do, but you've got to lift the heart, and and so that's why when I have the heart lifted but not yet cord, I'm keeping a close eye on those PA pressures because that will tell me how much flow I have in the LV and back into the pulmonary circulation. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, we, we, we went over it very quickly in that video. I took a picture of the, um, the, the flows and the PA line was flat and low and the, um, there was no pulsatility in the LV. So once I pick the heart up to identify the apex, I identify the apex and I core it almost right away because now I'm completely decompressed again, even if there is blood in the heart. Um, and I get concerned that if I've got a lot of blood flow from the aortic valve, I'm, I've got more AI than is being sold to me on, on, on pre-op TE or workup. The, the benefit of a thoracotomy approach is that the LV apex is sitting right in your face. There's no lifting that needs to be done. You just core right where you are. And there, therefore, you minimize the, um, the LV distension, which I don't care so much about LV distension in these patients, but uh, the subsequent rise in pulmonary artery pressures, uh, you know, that's more what I care about. So, Have you, uh, have you ever seen uh, in those circumstances where, you know, as you said, your AI maybe was undersold and you yeah. uh, ended up with a, uh, with a flash pulmonary edema or anything like that? No, I mean, not a flash pulmonary edema, but I see situations where I look at it as, you know, someone has quote-unquote mild AI on echo, but you look at the echo and you see the jet's a little eccentric, and you say, well, that, you know, I'm not sure that's mild. It might be on the upper end of mild. So I get to the OR and I tell the anesthesiologist, take a look at the AI, tell me if it's mild, and they look at it. I'm, I'm thinking of one case in particular a couple of weeks ago. Well, they say, okay, it's mild, but it's on the upper end of mild. And so, sure enough, I raise the heart and I core, and just blood is everywhere in our yeah. face. Yeah. And that tells me I just need to replace the aortic valve. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and it's not so much uh, flash pulmonary edema. It's more, do we need to replace the aortic valve or not? Okay, so, yeah, I see what you're saying. So you don't, so really your issue, you're looking at those PA, well, if you didn't core right away, and you filled right. it, you blew the heart up, that could have its own problem. Yeah, you could have a problem. But really, right. it's your ability to complete the surgery because if you can't see, you can't do it. Now, just right. out, of, out of curiosity, um, are these, I'm assuming these LVADs are total flow. Is there any, would there, 
is there ever any an opportunity or ever a time when you would consider just obstructing the left ventricular outflow tract completely, just just uh, 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 completely closing the aortic valve outlet, um, and you would still have coronary flow because of your outflow VAD, but has that ever happened? Is that something that could happen? Yeah, you can do that. Um, you, you can do that, although it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, I, you know, I can... Um, it's almost like I'm looking through these magnifying glasses with one eye shut, and, and I'm seeing a very narrow portion of the LV apex and left ventricle, and I can see the mitral valve, but not all of it. Um, and so identifying that area is very difficult. And so once the heart is cored, well, then you're decompressed. I mean, you should be decompressed. And if you've got a lot of blood flow, just put another pump sucker in. Eventually, the, you know, there's no amount of blood that you can't uh, control with a bunch of pump suckers. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, if, if someone's got bad enough AI, uh, like let's say they've got severe AI, then I might replace their aortic valve before I even do the coring and whatnot. Mm -hmm. so it just kind of depends on how things look. That makes sense. Yeah, you've just got to have that plan ready uh, beforehand. So what do we do with mild or more? I mean, mild AI, sometimes you can leave alone, but if it's on the upper end of mild or moderate or severe, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with it. I went through a period of time where I did a lot of park stitches, um, but I've seen a couple of them fail, um, and I and when they fail, they fail bad. I mean, the patients just kind of die right away. Um, they get bad pulmonary edema, their flows go way down, um, and so I've gone away from the park stitch and gone towards replacing the aortic valve in everyone. And the nice thing about an aortic valve in someone who's getting an LVAD, like you can put a 19 uh, millimeter valve in and not worry about it because they've got an LVAD, so. It's not a huge deal. Um, other things you can do, so the park stitch, which is a central stitch, you can over-sew the valve completely, which you can imagine if the LVAD stops, then you really, you got problems. You can take a pericardial membrane and over-sew the aortic valve as kind of like a plate. Um, but I think the best uh, course of action is just replace the valve if you're going to be, be in there uh, working. So, uh, and if you're interested, you check out this article by Park in JTCVS in 2004, which describes the park stitch and the outcomes associated with it. And it, you know, granted, the outcomes are pretty good. And it doesn't add pump time or anything or cross-clamp time, but uh, again, I wouldn't cross-clamp unless I had to fix the aortic valve. So, so I don't think adding an aortic valve adds a lot more cross-clamp time than a park stitch. And you'll have to forgive me. I don't mean to keep asking you questions, but they keep I keep getting these thoughts in my head. And I'm curious, are you going to use a... If you are going to replace the aortic valve, let's say you have severe AI and you have to replace the valve or you have to obstruct the, the LV outflow, are you going to preferentially use a mechanical valve versus a tissue valve or tissue valve versus mechanical? And why would you choose one versus the other? Yeah, I'm gonna, I mean, you know, the intuition is that you're going to have to be on Coumadin with an LVI. So why not just use a mechanical valve? But those patients tend to do not so great. Um, they tend to do poorly, um, valves thrombose and whatnot. So I just put a tissue valve in them. And, you know, let's say they're alive in uh, 10, 15 years, and their valve is tight. Really, if they've got an LVAD, I, I don't care as much if their LVAD, is, if their aortic valve gets stenotic. And, you know, I wonder, although this has never been proven, but if you've got someone with a tissue valve who you lose a therapeutic Coumadin the rest of their life, uh, I wonder if that um, 
if that is going to delay uh, valve stenosis, prosthetic valve stenosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so... So I put a tissue valve in. Yeah, I guess my thought would be, you know, it's not going to be moving um, like it normally would, but it's, only, but it's always going to have that closed tension on it. Uh, of course, if it, you know, if you had tissue, if you had degeneration and you just developed AI, that would be one problem. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I, I don't know. I, yeah, it makes sense. But, but in patients with tissue valves who develop AI, they have a stent, an external stent that you can then use for a TAVR. This but is it's true. very difficult to tap someone with AI who has a native valve. It's very difficult. And you can't tap someone with a mechanical valve. So I think if you're thinking in terms of long-term care, a tissue valve gives us the most options down the line. Mm -hmm. For instance, if they develop AI, they get a tapper. If they develop AS, who cares? With a mechanical valve, if they develop anything, you can't really do anything about that. You're kind of stuck. So I think the preference is a tissue valve. Okay, yeah. All of that, that, that actually, when you when you think that out all the way, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. We can go to the next slide. So uh, there aren't a lot of groups around that will fix all these other valves and, and problems. I'm not a fan of doing a lot. Um, I think I'm, I'm of the school that less is more. Uh, so if someone's got severe MR, which a lot of these people do, I think unloading the LV a little bit uh, will make the MR better. So I won't do anything. I just leave them with severe MR. And uh, it may complicate post-operative care, but it doesn't usually. I've not found it to. Um, a TR, I don't, again, I don't do anything. It's just a marker for RV failure. So I keep an eye on the degree of TR after the case. Uh, if you injure a graft while you're doing a cabbage, you may want to, I mean, while you're doing an LVAD, you may consider fixing that, or you may consider bypassing that because uh, for instance, if you've got someone who's living off a saphenous vein to the right coronary and you get into that while you're doing your LVAD, they're really going to struggle with RV failure after. Um, you know, to some extent, we do oversew the LAD, the distal LAD, with every LVAD we do, just pu putting that um, sewing ring in. So, uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean there's an indication for cabbage. So I'll do a cabbage if I injure a, a vein or a limit LAD, but not routinely. Um, and then, because if they've got coronary disease and you've committed them to an LVAD, you've already committed them to moving down the pathway of heart failure. So next is a transplant, or they're going to do fine with their LVAD. I don't usually do a maze. Sometimes I'll ablate ventricular uh, tissue. Sometimes if there's like scar tissue in the LV and they've had like really bad VT, I'll, I'll cryoablate that. It does add extra time to the case. Um, and it's sometimes hard to identify this scar tissue. Um, and just by coring the LV apex, you're getting rid of a lot of the scar tissue. That might be a nitus for the uh, VT. Mm -hmm. And then left atrial clips or ligations, I, I you know, sometimes I've, I've done it. Uh, I'm not sure what the benefit is, especially if they're anticoagulated. Um, but I've also explanted hearts that have had these big <coughs> um, LV, <coughs> these big left atrial appendage clips on them. And, you know, I've done it, and it's hard. It's very hard. And, so, and I've torn the pulmonary artery trying to get one of these things out um, because it's got all this felt on it. So it really adheres to everything around it. So... If there's no need for it or un if there's no, you know, I, I try and stay away from doing anything with left atrial appendage. So, uh, next slide. So, how do I come off bypass? Well, I go real slow. Um, I, try and, I try and go slow. I get a little impatient sometimes. But the goal is to get off bypass. 
The goal is not to get to max LVAD flows very quickly. The goal is to just get off bypass. And if you've got someone with heart failure and an EF of 5%, if they were able to go on bypass, they're going to be able to come off. And you need to decide beforehand the risk of RV failure, and then you need to your cardiopulmonary bypass accordingly. So if the risk of RV failure is high, I'll come off with RPMs, and this is for heart rate 3, I'll come off bypass with RPMs of about 3,000 to 3,500, and I up titrate that slowly after bleeding control, the chest is closed, and while we're in the ICU over multiple hours. If there's really low risk of RV failure, the RV looks good, I'll kind of fly off bypass and ramp it up to 5,000 and see what we get away with. Um, but the argument for moving quickly to goal is, uh, so uh, let me back up. I, I, I think that um, if the RV will tolerate it, I'll ramp it up quickly. And, I, and when I say I ramp it up, I do it safely, and it's a little bit of a test for RV function. I, I want to ramp up to, to 5,000, which is where I like to end up on these LVADs, and see what the RV can tolerate. And if the RV can't tolerate that, it tells me a lot about their underlying RV failure. Um, but, you know, the, the argument for moving that quickly is to stay uh, away from flows that are very low for too long. And I know these people are anticoagulated, but if you flow for, like, one liter a minute for multiple hours, I mean, you're still at risk for pump thrombus. So you do need to kind of move along. But whether that means you need to move along in the, in the OR or you can kind of move them up after they get back to the ICU um, is debatable. So with the heart rate, I turn it on at 3,000 RPMs, and I titrate to a goal of around 5,000. Uh, once you get to 4,000, you'll start getting flow estimates on your on your console. Don't forget the hematocrit. Things change in the OR, so you've got to make sure you're titrating the hematocrit on the pump. High, high hematocrit equals high blood viscosity and lower calculated flow. And I've seen this be off by you know half or three quarters of a liter. The HVAD I turn on at about 1,400 RPMs, and I titrate to 2,000 RPMs. So the the RPMs are a little different given the pump. Um, let's go to the next slide. So this is, I'm not an artist, but this is the extent of my art. Um, again, when I'm coming off pump, I'm looking at the septum. The septum is everything. And I'm going back to this metesophageal four-chamber view often. Uh, the, uh, what you have on the left here is the ideal situation. What you have on the right is really the not ideal or worst case scenario. Um, if you have a dilated LV <coughs> with the pump kind of free floating, that's good. You want to keep going, keep up titrating your RPMs. You'll then get to a point where you see the septum start to come in or flatten. So you're still okay there, but you got to start, you know, you got to be cognizant at that point that you're going to cause a suction event if you continue to ramp it up. And then the earliest sign of a suction event is just the, it's, it's a very subtle bowing in of the LV septum into the LVAD pump very distally. And this is what I try and teach the people I'm teaching or trainees or anesthesiologists I work with that it's not, you're not going to see what you see on the right. It's not going to look like a crescent. It's going to be this subtle little notch going into the LV pump. That's the first sign that you're running into trouble. And so if I see that, I either slow down, give volume, or I turn the pump flows down. And then obviously, if you see what you see on the right, your flows are going to be low. You're going to be hypotensive. You're going to have to turn the flows down. So um, so that's kind of what I'm looking at on the echo views. And, and if you're a perfusionist and you're interested, you know, Save this slide and, and, and see if you can kind of correlate that with what you're seeing in the OR. Now, like I said, you give volume here. Could you continue giving volume on this ball right? Usually you can, but you've got to turn the LVAD pump flows down. Um, I think that's going to be the number one fix. But, you know, you can give volume assuming the RV is okay. You can give a little volume. Um, 
or leave some volume in if you're still on pump. But uh, really, the the ideal thing to do is just start over. Go back to 3,000 RPM, start over. And you'll see once you do that, the pump will separate from the LV apex and it'll and it'll start to fill again. So we can go to the next slide. So RV failure in a lot of patients develops uh, slowly, um, especially if you fail to diurese a patient, whether or not you're not diuresing well enough and then they develop because they fall off the starling curve or if they fall off the starling curve and can't contract and therefore you then lose flow to kidneys and can't diurese, it's like a chicken or the egg, what comes first? But I, I, I make an analogy to a slow-moving train rather than a crash-and-burn situation. It's really rare that you're crashing and burning onto an RDAD outside the OR, like in the ICU. And if someone's crashing and burning in the ICU, usually they're going to end up on ECMO. Um, but usually the, R, the need for an RV presents itself as a slow-moving train, and you're, you're talking about it in the morning, and things are moving along, and they're not diuresing, and things are just getting worse. And then all of a sudden, you, you're like, you know what, I'm just going to put an RDAD in them. Um, and so... You, you want to aggressively diurese these patients once their volume settles out in the ICU. And I, I know there are a lot of people against early CRT, but if it means um, getting someone back on the Starling curve, meaning uh, re re um, relieving some of the, the stretch that the muscle fibers are seeing, then I'm all for CRT. And if it helps volume status and electrolyte status and kidney function, then go ahead and do it. Um, hypertension hurts LVAD flows regardless of an HeartMate 3 or an HVAD. My goal maps are 70s, 60s to 70s. If you're higher than that, you risk uh, dropping your flows because of high afterload. Um, and if you see pulsatility from the art line, it means that there's more room for unloading by the LVAD. Inotropes can be weaned. Uh, you need more diuresis. Um, but it's usually a sign of adequate RV function. Because if you think about it, if your RV has just gone, gone to hell, you're not going to you're really not going to be pulsatile. You're not going to be moving blood to the left side. Um, and so, but but if I see pulsatility, it means we're doing well. I mean, like, it's not something that's awesome to see, but it means that things are okay. And no one's really sure what the optimal aortic valve opening strategy is. So is it every, every beat should the aortic valve open, every other beat, every third beat, or should it not open at all? No one really knows. But I know that if the aortic valve is opening every beat, you're getting a pulse pressure, you have room to make changes, whether that's on the machine with RPMs or with more Lasix or diuresis or reducing your inotropes, all three of those things. So, uh, next slide. So, um, these companies uh, will put out HQ curves, and the HQ curves, uh, H is pressure. H is the pressure difference between what, what you're seeing at the LV pump and the outflow graph. And the Q is flow. And you'll see for any given RPM, the HQ curve looks different. And, and you can kind of chart where you are for a given RPM on that HQ curve. And it, and it, it kind of tells you how much work the heart is doing. Um, and the reason I say afterload is so bad is because, you know, the higher the afterload, the higher the H in the HQ curve is, and the lower flows you're going to get. Um, or be able to generate, but the pump is not going to be able to generate huge flows if your blood pressure is 200 over 150 or something. Um, so, uh, so the way the HeartMate 3 uh, uses this concept of HQ curve is they design this PI uh, pulsatility index, 
Uh, and if it's increased, you, it, it usually means you've got increased blood volume, better LV function, hypertension, less offloading. If the PI is decreased, it could mean decreased blood volume or RV failure. But you've got to correlate this with your flows. A PI event is not such a big deal, only in that it tells you that you could have problems down the line. And the, the pump is set to alarm when the PI differs from the average of a pulsatility index over the last couple cycles by 45%. And the pump speed is automatically reduced to prevent suction. A PI event is not a suction event, so those are not used interchangeably. A PI is a little bit of a warning, but a suction event is what happens if you ignore the PI events over a long period of time. So a PI event just tells you that you could be running into problems, but it doesn't mean you're having You'll have 60 PI events a day, but no suction events. Or you could have like a couple PI events a day and a couple suction events. So it's the same thing. A suction event is when LV myocardium touches the LV pump, the LDAD, and causes a reduction in blood because of the suction. So one to two times a day, you want to monitor, monitor the event analysis. You want to monitor the hematocrit, the low flow alarms, uh, the settings, because you can you can change settings. Uh, you want to make sure the LV, the low flow on the LVAD are hitting with uh, so that if it does more than 200 RPM divide, and it means the RPMs, but not your alarms super low. Drop RPMs, but that's not picked up by the alarm. So you got to make sure your alarms are, are set okay. I usually start happening on post op day one. Without a bolus, and I shoot for a PPT goal of 40 to 60, you can also use 10A levels. Um, I start warfarin the same day I start heparin. And for the HeartMate 3, I use 81 milligrams. For the Heart HVAD, uh, you know, I use 325. I think there's a big, I think that this is the HeartMate 3's way of throwing shade at the HVAD. Because um, they'll say, the reps for the HeartMate 3 will say, oh, yeah, well, the HVAD needs 325 of aspirin. You know, I think this is all just like, who knows? Um, you know, there is a tendency to have thrombus in, with an HVAD, but um, whether or not doing 325 of aspirin changes that, probably not. But that's just the way that, you know, that company throws shade at the other company. Well, we only need 81 milligrams of aspirin. Okay, big deal. Anyway, uh, next slide. So the HVAD is a little different because it gives you, uh, it doesn't use a PI. It gives you the actual waveforms, which are interesting. It, if, and the waveforms are essentially the PI. They're, they're the same thing. And they have this rule of two. So you want your flows greater than two liters a minute, and you want your peak to trough difference greater than two. So like if your flow is at four, and it's going four to six, toggling between four and six, you're in good position. The same thing with uh, the HeartMate 3 applies to the HVAD, except uh, we use 325 milligrams of aspirin instead of 81. And uh, you can learn a lot from HVAD waveform analysis. Um, and this is kind of a, uh, this, is, this is for another lecture. I think it's a lot, there's a lot to learn. And, and if you look at the, the waveform will give you what the combination of PI and flow on the HeartMate 3 will give you. Um, and then if we go to the next slide, you'll see, um, here we go. So this is important if you're dealing with these patients in the ICU and outpatient setting. Um, the two, the, the one ideal situation is higher flow and higher PI or higher pulsatility. That usually means you've got too much volume or you have recovery, but your, you know, your heart's functioning. So that's okay. Uh, the bad situation is low pulsatility and low flow. It means RV failure, hypovolemia, tamponade, occlusion, or VFib, VT. 
Uh, and then you have some other situations that kind of fall in between with higher flow, low pulsatility, or higher pulsatility, low flow. Um, and I keep a little picture of this on my phone because it's not always evident, but this can really this really give you a quick differential if you're in a bind with someone who's got um, an LVAD in. You can go to the next uh, next slide. <clears throat> so the uh, the HVAD and the L and the uh, HeartMate three both have these. Uh, cycles where they change their flow every either every second or every couple minutes uh, <clears throat> to uh, uh, to um, promote to lessen the degree of stasis the HVAD has this what's called a Lavari cycle so it's a 200 rpm decrease for two seconds and a 100 rpm increase for one second <clears throat> and then a return to baseline which occurs every minute it um, washes the LV it decreases blood stasis and it minimizes thrombus formation the HeartMate 3 has an article which is very similar, and it's a 2,000 RPM increase every, excuse me, every two seconds, and it can actually look like a pulse. So if you're looking at an art line tracing, you can be fooled into thinking that um, someone is pulsatile when they really aren't. Um, we're currently doing a trial here of the Lavari cycle. We're randomizing patients to Lavari cycle versus no Lavari cycle, um, in and and determining whether that really makes any clinically significant outcome. So um, just know that both pumps have the ability to go up and go down. The HeartMate 3, you can't set it. It's, it's constant. It's there. The HVAD has to be turned on. The Lavari cycle has to be turned on. We can go to the next slide. Um, there are situations where you can decommission VADs, which means basically someone's recovered. And usually this happens in young patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy. It's younger people with reversible causes like viral or peripartum. The typical story is that they had an LVAD for a really bad LV failure, and then there was a pump malfunction, and the patient is still alive. Um, and so they'll come in, and their pump's not working, but they're like sitting and talking to you, feeling well. You'll echo them. Their LV function is normal. So we admit them for a right heart cath and PA cath. We do an exercise test. We get them up, walk around the unit. We make sure their wedge and their um, PA cath pressures don't rise. You want to make sure they're optimally supported. And there are two options. You can either go in there and surgically remove the entire pump. <clears throat> this uh, avoids the risk of clot, avoids the need for anticoagulation, but requires a reduced sternotomy and a pump explant. Or you can pump, the, you can plug the outflow graft end, endovascularly and cut the drive line. Um, <clears throat> when you're doing this, you'll want to keep them on Coumadin at least initially, but we don't really have a good protocol or we don't really know what the optimal length of uh, Coumadin on these patients are or the natural history of someone who's got a pump that's just sitting in their chest that doesn't work. So this is all kind of um, not, it's not that common, so we don't really, uh, you know, know the long-term outcomes here, but those are the two options. Um, and uh, you can choose one of those two depending on institutional preference. Next slide. <clears throat> All right, so this, this lecture is essentially done. I do, I do have some research that I've done. Uh, I did as a fellow uh, with, some patient, with some people and patients in Colorado. Um, <clears throat> we were putting these uh, pressure volume loop catheters in patients who were getting LVADs, and we were putting them on the right side, just kind of taking a look at the RV contractility. And, and um, like you would imagine, um, RV failure was exposed with changes in loading condition. And like a slow-moving train, it didn't happen, you know, instantaneously. So they were well decompressed, as evidenced by this yellow pressure volume loop in the bottom, kind of third to the right. Um, and then in post-op day one, uh, 
their pressures were up, but their contractility wasn't great. So again, slow moving train, not so acute. Um, and the pressure volume loops on the right side demonstrated a decrease in preload recruitable stroke work and RV contractility, which means the RV did not have as much contractile reserve as we had thought um, after putting an LVAD in. And this goes for all patients, whether they're, you know, RV or dysfunctional RV. Go to the next slide. One more. Uh, yeah, next slide. I think I have one. Um, anyway. That, um, there's no reserve for the right patients getting LVADs. The number one cause of RV failure in the is LV failure, and this RV has been beat up long enough. But there's not a lot of contractile reserve, so that when you put an LVAD in them, there's a 30 to 40 percent instance of new RV failure or unmasked RV failure. So um, I think that's all I got. Go to the next slide, and I think uh, there's nothing else there. Yeah. So that's, that's all I got. I, that was a lot. I'm sure, it covered a lot of things, but um, I'm, I've even made myself fall asleep. Yeah, that was that was very comprehensive and really good. I mean, that was very that's ex a lot of exciting stuff. I mean, you guys do a lot of exciting stuff. Um, we do have a lot of questions. If you have a few moments, I know sure. we're running yeah. short, but um, one of the big questions, which is a multiple uh, people asking it, is where do you see TAH going? Total artificial heart. Yeah, um, I personally. Um, I, I know that we've had patients discharge on a total artificial heart, but I don't know we're there yet. My preference is um, <clears throat> in someone who I think we're supporting to transplant, meaning bridge, if you want to use those words, would be either durable, not durable, uh, uh, implantable bivads. So like, a, let's say we do bivads with a centromag, or just ECMO, and central ECMO or peripheral ECMO where they can walk around and a trait. I think all these patients need a durable airway, and in my mind, an endotracheal tube is a durable airway, but it's not going to allow them to get up and walk around. So I trach all patients who um, have central VA ECMO, or I call peripheral VA ECMO with right IJ and axillary, like an axillary graft. That's a big, that's enough flow for those patients to get up and walk around the unit. But I think anyone with advanced mechanical support should get a trach. Um, a lot of them, if they don't get a trach, will lay in bed and plug. Um, and, and once they get walking, I mean, once they're walking three or four laps a day and they're up and at it, even with ECMO, you can decannulate them. But those first few days or even week after you've put, you've reconfigured them to a central configuration, they're going to be laying in bed. They're going to be slumped over. Their secretions are going to be going into their trachea. So I think for the first couple of weeks, everyone on mechanical support like that needs a trach. Um, I don't, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of the total artificial heart. So again, my preference is central or peripheral VA ECMO, ambulatory with a trach. Um, I, I don't know that I see the total artificial heart going anywhere other than what we really use it for now, um, which is we don't we don't we we do it maybe once every nine months. That's how rare it is. We're not big mm -hmm. a total artificial heart center. Mm -hmm. And 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 why is that i mean you know so i mean when you when you look at the technology so you your your basically thought is is that the total artificial heart um if it was let's say as like like the one that i think is uh being developed you may know about it, i can't remember the name of it now but it's a single device dual chamber with some kind of a uh a movable 
baffle in the middle that changes volume and so forth, where you basically implant it and forget it. Um, that's it. Sounds easy, but you know we know it's really not. Uh, there's so many complications that are associated. So you you think the direction in the short term, near future, is going to be an a, an implantable, fully implantable bivad versus just a TAH. It might be. Um, and again, in my mind, I, I, our center is very comfortable with um, central VA ECMO cannulation and a trait. Um, <clears throat> we ambulate people, we get them rehabbed, and we get them transplanted. Um, we have a large transplant center, so we're able to transplant patients relatively expeditiously. Um, <clears throat> if they're well supported on their current platform and they're ambulating, why take them back to the OR and subject them to a big operation? Yeah, Other that's. That, and then they all bleed. I mean, constant bleeding. I mean, three weeks out, chest tube out. Now they're reaccumulating blood where they didn't before. Mm -hmm. And it's not a function of surgical technique. It's just a function of, I mean, the total artificial heart is Tupperware inside someone's chest. And it just, you know, the body doesn't like it. It, uh, it causes all these coagulopathic derangements. And so it's just, um, <clears throat> I mean, it's an okay device, but. And someone who's ambulating and on a durable, you know, configuration with a trach, there's no reason to go back. And, and So where do I see it going? I don't know. It might become a thing, just like cryptocurrency might. But really, I don't, I don't buy it right now. So. Very good. No, that's, that's, that's really such a good point. Um, so what are your thoughts on uh, xenografts as far as increasing the number of, uh, of uh, transplantable organs for cardiac, for hearts? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, uh, we don't do any of that here, um, and we don't have really a research lab dedicated to that. Um, again, we're talking well into the future, and I'm 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 dealing with what's in front of me, um, mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> it and I, I know there are possibilities <clears throat> for a lot of different things in the future. But I, again, that's another technology I don't see ready for prime time. I do think that if we're discussing what is in the near future as far as heart failure goes. So we're now using the transmedics device to rehab hearts. I mean, I think there's a bigger possibility for either genetic or epigenetic manipulation in hearts uh, that are kind of marginal, that are put on the box and let to sit, and then we can rehab them on, on the transmedics device. I think that's in the near future. I also think <clears throat> the NRP platform we discussed a few weeks or a few months back is also uh, it's something that we're going to see in the near future. Um, as far as years out, I, I can't really comment on the um, on, on a lot of the other stuff just because I don't know a lot about it. But I can tell you that our ability to rehab hearts using the devices we have today is more of a, um, a possibility than xenografts or anything else. Interesting, <clears throat> very interesting. Um, so you were talking about your your when you do these cases on pump, but John, you can jump in anytime you'd like. Um, do you do your your VAD implants with Angiomax or heparin? And obviously, you're not using protamine. So, do you just sit and wait for everything to wear off and get, you know, reasonable hemostasis before you close and uh, and get out of the operating room? You're talking about uh, protamine for LVADs. Yes, you obviously aren't. You don't use pro. So, do you use heparin or Angiomax for your anticoagulation when you go on pump? when you're going to implant an LVAD? We use, we use heparin, we use protamine too. Oh, you do? 
Heartmate three, yeah, we do. The Heartmate three, we're not. I'm not really worried about that. I, I just, you know, I, bleeding is a big problem. Bleeding is a huge problem. So that's number one. Number one, you got to fix that problem, and then you can worry about everything else after. You got to, you got to get some like. A, <laughs> this is like something I made up. You got to get a little coating on that outflow graph. So, um, and you're not going to get that if you just leave them on, you know, heparin. And generally, uh, we've got our flows high enough on the L to avoid thrombus. Yeah. At that point, at yeah. That time. yeah. So, are you guys doing? Are you guys doing much in the way of uh, anticoagulant-free? Uh, ECMO over there because we we just recently started doing that and have had you know good results. Yeah, we do. Um, I, I mean, it's surgeon specific and it's very um, it's very not specific. I should say it's um, situational. You know, we get some trauma patients who may need ECMO and VV ECMO. I mean, that's easy enough. Um, and I've run people on PA ECMO without anticoagulation before, um, and it's and it's fine. Um, I, I I mean. I have a guy who was on central VA ECMO um, with a PA vent who, you know, had multiple codes. I, I, convert, I reconfigured him to central VA ECMO, um, and I ran him without anticoagulation for about 12 hours until he was outside the window of bleeding, and then we slowly titrated it up. And that's central VA ECMO, so I'm not worried about that. Um, I think that's something, you know, I worried about when I was a fellow because we didn't have a lot of experience with it, but I've had more experience with it now, and if there's a bleeding complication, I just shut off the, I just shut off the heparin. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just something you got to do. Well, so. if they, yeah, and if they're coagulopathic, then really they're not going to clot anyway. Right. So, right. you know, you have to get all of that corrected. There's another question, yeah. which I thought was a, is a really good one. Um, on your, what is the optimal hematocrit for your, for your LVADs? You were talking about hematocrit. Um, you know, what is optimal? You know, I don't know the answer to that, or if I don't. So I, I don't know if there's an answer that's been studied. Um, but you know, I aim for eight, nine, ten, somewhere around there. I don't, I don't uh, really go chasing low hematocrit. So if they're seven, but they've been stably seven for five days, fine. Uh, I mean, if they're ten, eleven, twelve, fine. Um, you know, I. I've, I've not seen a patient who's much higher than that. I think after an operation like that, it's hard to have a hematocrit of like, or, uh, I'm talking hemoglobin. I'm sorry. I'm used to using hemoglobin. Yeah, okay, hemoglobin. Yeah. Uh, yeah I knew. Yeah, so. yeah, we, so, we all, so. we all knew what you meant. That's okay. Uh, we know you're but, not you running. Know, you're, we know you're not running your crits at your, your crits at 12. We know that. Yeah, their, their pump flows would be real, real high. Real high. But, but I usually am around, I usually settle out around seven to seven to 10. Mm -hmm. Usually we're up, so. How about on pump, John? What do you, you like to run on pump? Usually uh, we try around 30, between 25 and 30, preferably higher on the 30 end. On your hematocrit, yeah. So your hemo yes, so hemoglobin between 8 and 10, you're and fine 10, with. Yes. What's yes. your transfusion threshold? 21. Yeah. Uh, if, yeah. I, if we start getting around 21, 22, I'll you know, discuss with him or anesthesia yeah. and we'll kind of... Uh, go from there. Mm -hmm. uh, depends on the volume status. We may pull some, but 21 to 22. And usually yeah. with our prime volume, if we don't rat, depending on the situation, uh, we usually go on around 22 to 24. Yeah. And that corresponds to a hemoglobin of 7. Yeah. And if they're 7 in the unit for multiple days, again, we'll let it ride. But if they're getting to 7 or less, usually even if they're not bleeding uh, or if they've been stable, I mean, usually we'll give them a unit. It'll, it, helps their, um, it helps their mixed venous. Only because you're just 
raising one parameter of it, but it doesn't. I don't know that it does anything, especially if they're stable. So anesthesia here always wants to come off thirty. That's always <laughs> their goal is thirty. Mm -hmm. so, I like I like that. I prefer a higher. I prefer a higher hemoglobin than lower or crit versus lower. Yeah. You know, for the O2. Uh, do you aggressively ultrafiltrate when you're on pump? If if it's possible, I'll, I'll try to, you know, because they're diuresing these patients already, so we'll want to get their volume intact. And if they're volume overloaded mm. coming on with us, again, he's once they come off and get upstairs, he's, he's wanting to get that volume down. So mm -hmm. he said he's, he's okay with the CRT. So if I can go ahead and pull some volume off while we're on pump, even better. Mm -hmm. It's amazing the difference uh, you'll see. The cardiologist will say, okay, this patient is volume optimized. And you'll get to the OR, and they'll have no volume to give. Mm -hmm. And then you'll take someone else who's quote-unquote volume optimized. You get to the OR, and you take four or five liters off. And you're like, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well, I, just, I, 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 I like volume. I'm always a fan. Yeah, I think we, I think we um, historically grossly underestimate um, how much the patient is or is either tissue fluid overloaded but not necessarily intravascularly from low COP or whatever the reason is. And I think we also underestimate tissue fluid basically being desiccated um, and they have intravascular volume, but as soon as you go on pump and you drop your COP a little bit, there's fluid redistribution out to the, uh, out to the tissues. And that can hold a lot of volume. There's a lot of volume out there that is either missing from where you want it or need it or not being where you may also need it because it's going to leave you. So I think there's a lot of debate about that. But uh, um, there's another question, which I thought was a really good question. And um, I, yeah, I'd like to get your opinion about it. Obviously, physiologically, we are designed with a pulsatile uh, arterial tree because the pump, the heart, beats. But obviously, at the capillary level, that is a little bit different. We do notice that it is more of a continuous flow in the microcirculatory area. Do you see anything with uh, pulsatile pumps versus continuous flow pumps as far as patients' adaption to their new physiology? Not in the acute phase, no. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I don't know if... Uh, the incidence of stroke or, or renal failure or bleeding or AVMs, GI AVMs, can be attributable to a change in flow dynamics, um, but uh, not in the acute setting. And a lot of times, again, you got to remember that in the acute setting, some of these people are still pulsatile. A lot of them are. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of people are pulsatile. <clears throat> um, so we say they're continuous flow pumps, but a lot of times these people are pulsatile. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, <clears throat> with these uh, washing cycles that the two pumps have, to a lesser bad, but it can almost look like you're pulsatile on an arterial line tracing, even without pulsatility, just because of the RPM ramping up by 2,000 and down by 2,000. Whether that translates to real pulsatility in the body, I don't know. I mean, it certainly does on the art line. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and again, to answer the question, in the acute phase, we don't really see much of a, a, a change in adaptation or change in our difference in, in, in patients. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, I mean, I've, I've, answer, I've asked the questions at least that I got from our audience to you. John, do you have any, uh, any further comments you'd like to make uh, to close this out? Any particular questions you may have for Dr. Hoffman? No. Uh, 
Usually I catch him on the flies when he's, it was is when he's busiest. I have a question for him. Usually that's how that's how it happens with him. But no, I'm I'm good right now. Okay, very good, Doctor Hoffman. Anything you'd like to close out with, and maybe you could yeah. uh, give us a little bit of a preview of what you're how you're going to go through this next, so the VADS Part 3, when we are able to schedule that, where, where are you going to go with this? Well, I think the most important thing in my mind is that the best biventricular option for anyone is a transplant. And so we talk about all VADS and total artificial hearts and central VA ECMO or, you know, BIVADS with Centromags. But these are all just temporary and partial. Even in LVAD, it's still partial support. And so um, my goal with anyone is to get them to transplant. And, mm -hmm. and we can do that at our center. Uh, I, I know there are other centers that can do that. Um, there, uh, but uh, I think it goes to a bigger discussion of uh, heart transplant uh, listing criteria and selection criteria and whatnot. Um, but, the best option is heart transplant, and if we can do that by any means, we'll do it rather than an LVAD. Yeah. Uh, as far as VADS Part 3, I'm going to have to come up with something. Well, um, it may not have to be VADS Part 3. I think we can talk. I mean, there's so many different things. and I, th I see your passion for transplants um, and how far superior you, you believe that to be over what is the direction of some industry going into the total artificial heart and essentially having what would be then an unlimited supply of mechanical circulatory support devices, whereas transplants has a, you know, a, a limited number. You have to have the donors and you have to have the, the ability to cross-match them and be a suitable you know, organ for any one patient. So your real direction seems to be, at least in my, what I can extrapolate is expanding the donor pool with these devices like the transmedics to get farther and farther away and uh, essentially re you know reconditioning these organs to be able to be used so that seems to be the direction you're going yeah i think i think it's exactly right i mean i think you know i love i love LVADs and i love all these mechanical devices and and whatnot but It'd be great to get to a point one day where we don't need them. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, bridge to transplant is really what you view the VAD technology as being. Correct. That's the takeaway message, I think, for us. Listen, yeah. I can't thank you enough. Again, this is yet another highly successful Vanderbilt faculty forum. It's been fantastic. Magic is back there giving me these two thumbs up. Um, we appreciate you guys. I, I can't thank you enough. And, uh, you know, go yeah. forth and conquer, and hopefully you'll have a good, uh, you know, good organ to get today with your, uh, with your harvest, and uh, another patient will be helped. It's, you know, of course, it's, it's tragically sad that, you know, we know that somebody had to have lost their life for someone else to live, but uh, it's, you know, basically, if you look at it that way, it's tragic, but the other way, you basically are, 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 are reducing the mortality by a foot by 50% by giving somebody that opportunity. Otherwise, both of them were not going to make it. So I think it's, a, uh, it's, a, uh, it's really something that is valuable in our society and our community. And we thank people like you so very much for being willing to take this very 
difficult task on with the with the a great sacrifice of your own personal life to help others. So we appreciate that from both of you very much. Maybe next time I'll talk about personal sacrifice. Could could you say that again? Your 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 signal was breaking up. What did you say? I said maybe next time I'll bring my wife on and she can talk about the personal sacrifice. You know, I think that that'd be fantastic. I think that would be fantastic. In fact, I've been, you know, you bring up such a good point. Um, This COVID uh, has really, I think, the spouses of medical professionals um, have sacrificed during, uh, throughout our careers. And then also, I think, during, um, you know, things like we just experienced with the pandemic and us having to basically spend all of our time at work. So, you're absolutely right. You know, we, we get awards, you know, we've, we've given, of course, the Crystal Heart Award out, you know, to people like Dr. Robichek and Dr. Ochsner and Dr. Cooley and Dr. Frazier and various different people who have done remarkable things throughout their careers um, and uh, incredible people, certainly. But their, their families um, are really the heroes when you really think about it, because without that stability, they could have never done what they did. And the same, I think, applies today. So you're right. Your wife deserves a uh, vacation to Houston. So we're inviting her to the studio, and you can stay right there in Nashville. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. You be safe. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. See you later.